As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Friends, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Ben Sternke, one of your hosts. I'm here with Matt Tebby. I'm here too. I'm also one of the hosts, and my name also, is Indeed. I can verify that my this, name is Matt Tebby. are all true. Yep, Ben. Friends, we are... Keep speaking yep. truth, Ben. Speaking the truth in love over here. <laughs> uh, uh, we are... Uh, this is the second uh, episode of our new series, uh, which is on being a Christian in the USA, um, the complications and... Uh, opportunities, the pitfalls, and the possibilities um, of being a Christian in the USA right now, which uh, I do think it's a—it's not as straightforward as it used to be, Matt. No, no, it doesn't it's, feel as straightforward as it used to feel. Maybe I think maybe it's think, always been complicated. No, nah, well, I mean, I was—I sort of you when you become a Christian in America and you t- want to take Jesus seriously, you sort of inherit mm-hmm. some assumptions about what that means and mm-hmm. what I have to care about and and how yeah. that looks and what 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 keeps happening and this is what's fascinating to me and this is why we're doing this series is that people keep taking these assumptions that America that we just an, adopt and inherit in America and they mm-hmm. keep now hang with me here Ben they okay. keep going to Jesus and asking him hey is this what you care about too Mm-hmm. And Jesus is actually like, well, yes, some of that, but here, let me tell you about some other things. And then and then we lose our biscuit, and we don't know what to do with it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we proof text, right? We're like, thanks, Jesus, for the affirmation. I'm not sure. I can't hear you anymore. Yeah. I have I have, a, I have some points to prove. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we sort of, um, it's difficult uh, because I think we, like you're saying, we have inherited 
And we don't intend to do this. We just mm-hmm. sort of absorb it because that's how culture works, right? We just, yes. we don't intend to say like, oh, I'm going to, none of us are blank slates. We're all Americans, at least uh, those of us who do live in America. Yeah. And if you're listening from outside of America, I hope you still find this series fascinating and interesting um, because I'm sure there are other, uh, you know, other people from other nations are going to have other issues, right? So if you're from England, uh, following Jesus in England is going to... Um, Anyway, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have other kinds of complications. Maybe um, you can learn from us maybe. as we sort of interrogate our culture yeah, with... Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm know, saying. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, we're, um, we're talking with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove today. We did this interview with him a while back uh, about his new book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good, uh, mm. which is a great, uh, a great title, Reclaiming Public Faith for the common good. It reminds me a little bit, Matt, of our sermon series. You and I uh, yes. co-pastor a church here in Indianapolis called The Table, uh, if you guys don't know that. And um, we are, uh, this fall, we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And the title of our sermon series is called The Politics of, Living the Politics of Jesus in a Partisan America. And yeah. kind of one of the main focuses, foci? One of the main things we're focusing on, I will phrase it that way. One of the main things we're focusing on in this sermon series is how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not giving us private moral instruction for how Mm. to be nicer. Mm -mm. Jesus is giving us a politic. He is giving us a new vision. He's he's establishing a new political order. And what we mean by politics is just how we arrange our 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 public life together, how Mm -hmm. we arrange our society. Mm -hmm. And um, what Jesus is giving us in the Sermon on the Mount is a is a politic. And so the church is called to actually live out her own politics mm-hmm. in the midst of whatever political regime, you know, uh, she happens to, to be uh, yes. dwelling within. Yes. But we're called to live out our, a different politic altogether, not to sort of try to cram Jesus into the right or the left of the way that the American system has set up politics. Right. And so we're looking not just for... Um, a, a, a nice little snuggled place in the middle of right. the left-right binary. Right. But people like Jonathan Wilson Hart, Hartgrove are giving us a new imagination. Yes. Uh, we need a new frame to live faithfully yeah. in America. Yeah. And and I, I know a lot of you who are listening, this is like speaking to deep intuitions that you've mm-hmm. had, mm-hmm. where you feel torn between two polarities and neither feels like it's faithful for you. Mm-hmm. This is why we're doing this series is to help mm-hmm. hew out, carve out, maybe fashion a new imagination so that we don't have to be co-opted by yes. uh, worldly systems and structures that aren't perfect fits for the ethic and logic of Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. To, uh, and hopefully this series does that. Uh, we're interviewing a lot of authors. It's kind of ambitious. As, as I say it, it sounds very I, ambitious. Well, it does sound ambitious, but we have to, I think, try because it's going to take it's going to take some time to unwind the antagonisms, to unwind the, uh, the frames that we've engaged with this stuff mm-hmm. in the past. Like it's going to take a while to kind of, um, unwind all that stuff. So yeah. anyway, um, we're hoping that our interviews can, can help with that. Um, we've got some really uh, good stuff coming up. We've got DL Mayfield, Alan Noble, David Swanson, Lee camp. Ooh. Um, Anyway, lots I'm of lots of great stuff, isn't that? Isn't yeah, it, yeah. this is going to be great? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're hopeful that these are helpful for you in, as Matt said, just establishing that new imagination, escaping from the way that um, the American political system tries to collapse 
our our discourse, our dialogue, our thinking, our imagination, collapse it into these two choices or um, this one spectrum along which you have to sort of place your place your X. So hopefully these conversations will help you um, transcend that binary. Really, yeah. kind of, uh, what does it mean to? follow Jesus in a way that's not a private spiritual thing that just me and Jesus hang out and and do together. And then we leave the running of the world to the uh, political machine. Mm. Uh, But then how does it also not become us uh, collapsing into the way that the machine works now? So how do we actually live out of the politics of Jesus in our everyday lives Mm. uh, with the people that we actually are in relationship with? Yep. I think Jonathan's book goes a long way towards that in this interview. Uh, is great. He's he's a super articulate, uh, really down to earth uh, guy. Can I can I sh- can I share something with you, Ben? I haven't told you this before. Okay, um, risky. We haven't really needed to talk about this before, and mm-hmm. it's not actually that big of a deal. But I know it'll it'll warm the cockles of your heart. Okay. Uh, I got I got major Dallas Willard energy from Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Did you? Yes. Ooh, you talk about that in the yeah. in. Well, you well, have you to just listen that? for this. I've, I, I mean, think I know what you mean by that. But what do you mean? By that? I mean, he's like so. I'm a fast talker. I'm a. I'm, I've I've described myself as sort of a sanctified circus barker. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's just kind of my energy. But Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, he's he is thoughtful, mm-hmm. slow, kind, gentle. He's never in a hurry when he's speaking. Mm. And I don't know if you remember this. Mm-hmm. After we got done recording, he spent 20 or 30 minutes asking us about our church and what we were doing. Yeah. And do you remember that? Yeah, I and do. Yeah. genuinely just curious. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's what I mean by Dallas Willard energy. Yeah. He he wasn't thinking about what was next. He wasn't think he wasn't still hungover from what happened before. Mm. And he was hospitable in our conversation that he did not uh, ever feel, I never felt like he wanted to talk over me, interrupt me. Mm. And then when he started speaking, he just was not in a hurry to finish. Yeah. And that <laughs> that's what I mean by Dallas Willard energy. Yeah. Yeah, man. That that does remind me of, of Willard. Yeah. So. So as you listen, you know, let notice, w- let that, let that uh, Willard aesthetic yeah. just flow into your ear holes. <laughs> yeah. And le- and maybe, you know, let it call you uh let it call you into that. I, every time I mm. meet somebody like that, I'm like, ah, okay, that's what I want to be like when I grow mm. up. Mm. That's yeah. what I want to be like. So. Yeah. All right. Well, enjoy this interview, friends. It's a good one. Uh Jonathan is uh a gentle prophetic voice uh, that is needed for this yes. time. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you. We have started this series on being a Christian in America and all the complexities and opportunities that uh, presents to us. And we're going to talk about a book that you wrote recently, uh, Revolution of Values. Uh, But first, Jonathan, I'd, I'd be interested to hear just an introduction, like who you are, what you spend your time doing. I know you're living in North Carolina. Yeah, well, I'm here, um, like most people in the world right now, I'm here at home in uh, Durham, North Carolina, 
I live at the Rootba House, which is a house of hospitality uh, in the tradition of hospitality houses that Dorothy Day and Peter Morin started in New York City during the Great Depression. So, you know, in another um, economic and uh, public health crisis, um, we're trying to figure out how to practice Christian hospitality and, um, you know, make sure our uh, friends and neighbors, particularly those who are marginalized, living on the streets, um, coming home from prison, other things, um, are able to um, have what they need to survive. And in the midst of that, uh, you know, remembering that Jesus said, this is how Jesus comes to us. Um, yes. I always think I'm a Baptist also, so I always remember what Clarence Jordan said, that the resurrection of Jesus doesn't mean that you know he's gone up on high and we can be with him when we die. It means Jesus is alive and he's active in the world and he's liable to show up at your door any day and bring yes. his homeless and sick and uh, uh, needy sisters and brothers with him. So that's kind of how we live our life. And um, these days have been a challenge trying to figure out how to do that while also, yeah. you know, maintaining social distance and loving our neighbors by uh, staying home. Yeah. For those unfamiliar with Ripa House and just the hospitality uh, tradition in general, what, what does that look like practically on a weekly basis or day-to-day -day basis? How many people do you have living with you? How long do they stay? What's, what is the rhythm or commitments that are made, et cetera? Well, uh, my family lives in a house that has, um, uh, three bedrooms in addition to the ones we live in. And so, you know, there can be three or four folks here with us at a time. And, um, uh, we share life together, you know, uh, in, in the household, but also, uh, try to be a place of, uh, respite and kind of a community center. Um, normally that means people are here in the mornings to join us for prayer and stop by during the day and that we have a communal dinner in the evenings. Um, these days it means a lot more conversations out on the porch. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, or organizing deliveries and supplies that people need, uh, getting them to their homes or trying to help people find indoor places to stay while, um, while we're all dealing with this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned you're a Baptist. You also do some pastoring there as well. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I'm at the St. John's Missionary Baptist Church which is uh, right here in our neighborhood, two blocks up the street. Yeah. Has great. also become a uh, more, even more of a community distribution center in these times. Mm. We had the national guard here on Friday, handed out uh, 450 boxes of supplies to a line of cars for two hours. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, uh, let's jump into this book that you've written. Um, and the subtitle of the book is Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. But the title, Revolution of Values, I wonder, that phrase, uh, where did you get? Where did you land on that phrase? Did you select the title of the book, or was that selected by the publisher? Well, it uh, was a cooperative effort, but I certainly <laughs> agreed with it. It's, a, it's straight out of Dr. King's uh, sermon that he gave a year to a date before he was assassinated at the mm -hmm. uh, Riverside Church in New York City. It was um, an important sermon speech um that he had worked with uh, dr vincent harding for some time some months uh they had worked together on it because uh he was going to come out against the vietnam war in that speech and he knew that it would cost him a great deal um, um 
the next day, the FBI circulated uh, uh, op-eds that they had pre-written uh, attacking King and mm-hmm. um, many civil rights organizations, church groups, um, other groups um, came out against him. But uh, what King said in that speech was that uh, he had come to realize that there was a triplet of evil in this country, that uh, racism and poverty and militarism had uh, worked together in such a way that they had trapped us in what was essentially a death cycle. Mm-hmm. And that he, he was saying only a radical revolution of values, that is a, a re-centering of what we care about, uh, could uh, lead us to be the country that we had aspired and promised to be um, in our past. And certainly only a revolution of values could allow us to, uh, in any way, be Christian in this American story. And so he offered that as a challenge. And in many ways, I think it was the great challenge of the last year of his life um, as he was building the Poor People's Campaign with many other people around the country, uh, a work that continues to this day and that I'm very involved in. So much of this book is really about telling stories from the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival that is happening today and uh, showing how Uh, those people's lives, that is the people who've been most marginalized within this American story, uh, can illuminate what the gospel really has to say to us about what it means to live our faith in public. Yes. Yeah. I I wonder if we could start, because one of the most striking parts of this book are these interviews that you've conducted with people that you you tell each chapter has a story that um, is a real life and a real situation where the theme or the topic of the chapter is sort of on display and incarnate. Uh, But I wonder if we could start with your story, Jonathan. You were raised maybe uh, not to uh, have a revolution of values, but to extend sort of American values and to uh, fully sort of hold biblical or gospel values and America values as concomitant. And you tell a little bit of your story at the end of the book. Would you just share like what that was like for you and and then what, what caused you to have this this repentance or this awakening? Yeah. the One of the reasons I don't tell my own story until the end of the book is that in some ways I want to help people see that this is a story we all share. And that's a lot of what the book is about. The, the last 40 years of how the Christian narrative has been woven into uh, a, a certain understanding of what it means to be Uh, American and what it means to have American values and family values and traditional values. All of that was a project that was uh, organized by uh, people who had a vested interest in America as it worked and America as it was being challenged in the 1960s and 70s. Hmm. And what they did with a great deal of investment, both money and intellectual resources, was to create networks that tried to uh, uh, say that the status quo, essentially the corporate controlled um, uh, government that allowed them to be in power was uh, blessed by God and that um, the there, there were particular wedge issues. Uh, the first one they chose was abortion and then it became issues of human sexuality um, as the decades moved on. But these wedge issues were used to try to organize mostly white um, conservative people uh, for political purposes, uh, but in the name, not of their race, but of their religion. 
And so I was raised in the midst of that, and I was raised to be a culture warrior, you know, kind of on the front lines of um, of this battle right as it was beginning. I, I came to realize that I grew up in the 80s right as this organized effort was beginning to take off. And, and in my own uh, formation and growing up, I wanted to do all that I could for Jesus, and I thought that meant I should become president of the United States because that's what this whole, you know, um, uh, values, family values movement suggested. And so uh, I was trying to do yeah. that as a young person. And I ended up in Washington, D.C. in the Senate working for Senator Strom Thurmond. Um, and uh, when I was there, I uh, got close enough to the practice of this kind of politics to realize that it really didn't have very much to do with what I had learned in Sunday school. It was ultimately more about maintaining power and serving the interests of the uh, corporations and um, wealthy people who funded the campaigns of the people who had been sent there. Uh, there was not much happening in terms of the policy that was even benefiting my own people uh, who were largely, you know, rural, uh, fairly low income uh, agricultural community in, in Western North Carolina. And so um, uh, that realization for me that um, I, as a white person had been pitted against black people, against brown people, against, uh, you know, people who were the so-called uh, uh, beneficiaries of welfare, um, only to uh, not be doing much better, really, um, as communities, and to see that this divide and conquer strategy, uh, giving me the sense that what I was doing was somehow righteous, was how uh, the people who were in charge have maintained power and how a system really is built um, to keep things roughly the way they are. And I'll fast forward real quickly just to say that I think this story matters because right now we're in a situation where everybody is aware of the fact that we have a system in this country that, uh, that has created extreme inequality. And in the midst of a pandemic, we see that that inequality creates these fractures through our society that allow a virus like this to spread, right? If you have a huge percentage of your population that doesn't earn a living wage and thus has to work even under stay-at-home orders, that doesn't have access to health care and thus you know, has pre-existing conditions and comorbidities that, that, that make them susceptible to this virus, then you very quickly become the world leader in coronavirus deaths and <laughs> cases because of the underlying uh, uh, conditions. And so, you know, while we've been talking about individual bodies, uh, you know, having potential underlying conditions that make them vulnerable to the society, I hope that what we're learning from this pandemic is that the body politic in this country has underlying conditions, the underlying conditions of poverty and of extreme inequality that have made us the global leader in um, a, a disease uh, that that uh, is not only terribly you know uh, uh, disastrous to you know the people who experience it but that in in many ways is exposing how disastrous our public policy is in this country and so I I think it's a really important wake-up call um, we've heard a lot of stories and we repeat these stories sometimes without knowing it about you know American exceptionalism and how uh, you know, the greatest democracy, greatest nation on earth, this kind of stuff. And I, I don't in any way mean to, you know, um, downplay the, you know, the real achievements and the real um, 
gifts of this country. They, there are real gifts. And yet, yeah. uh, at some point, I think we have to pay attention to reality, pay attention to the data. Um, we are, yeah. as a nation, 5% of the world's population. Today, when I looked, we have 28% of the world's death from this um, epidemic. And um, that's not accidental. That's the result of decades of policy. Yeah. And in many ways in this book, I was trying to tell the story of how that policy came to be baptized in a form of Christian nationalism that I think yes. is incredibly dangerous. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's really helpful. I mean, I, I grew up um, similarly. You're probably, um, I, I was I was younger in the 80s, uh, I think, and I, I, was, I was never quite baptized into that culture warrior uh, kind of mentality. But, um, but it's it, it like what what the, what's striking about what you're saying, um, Jonathan, is that this is this was an organized effort to create a narrative and sell it to people. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I was growing up, it just sort of felt self-evident. It mm-hmm. felt like, oh, this is just what it means to be a Christian. You know that that there was there was a lack of awareness of like, no, this is something that actually there are powerful forces at play wanting me to believe this for very specific reasons anyway and it, it it's uh it's shocking sometimes it's disorienting to realize oh yeah. like uh, that you know people are trying to play me as a pawn in a game and i i was just trying to follow jesus you know i was just trying to be a good good boy you know like so it's uh it can be really disorienting to discover some of these things well and i i you know in many ways i don't want to blame people for something that we didn't understand, right? Yeah, sure. um, uh, part of what I want to say with this book and with much of what I do these days is, is that um, the people who have intentionally misinformed uh, much of this country, and particularly much of the church in this country, um, have to be held accountable. Their um, uh, thou shalt not lie is right there in the book. <laughs> and that ought to uh, mean something in terms of the way uh, money is spent on what I think is rightly called propaganda. Uh, mm-hmm. Just last month in Sojourner's magazine, I don't, I don't know if y'all get that magazine, but um, um, I interviewed Ann Nelson and the interviews in last month's issue. Uh, Ann has spent uh, about a decade uh, doing invest. She, she's a great investigative journalist. She teaches at the uh, journalism school up at NYU, which is one of the best in the country. And, um, I'm sorry, Columbia University. And um, uh, she wrote this book uh, uh, called The Shadow Network. And uh, it's really about her research into the Council for National Policy, which is if there is a hub of the kind of organizing that I'm trying to talk about, the CNP has been the hub of that work. Uh, it's where, um, as one member said, the donors and the doers came together, right? So the the um, uh, executive directors and the spokespeople for some of these uh, nonprofit and ministry organizations that I write about in this book uh, were regularly meeting with um, uh, the uh, moneyed interests, the families that had uh, inherited a great deal of money and that had businesses that were making a great deal of money. And they were um, uh, putting all of that together uh, in order to coordinate the effort to, uh, again, to propagandize um, Christian people hmm. in, in, in what Anne calls a, a kind of wraparound effect, right? So that so that this wasn't coming from just one direction, but rather this framing 
of values was what you uh, you know heard from Christian ministries that you were uh, getting literature from, but it's mm. also what you heard on Christian radio when you turned that on, yeah. and uh, what you heard from other independent media, uh, whether it was radio or TV, yeah. and uh, what you also heard from various political groups. And so that sort of echo chamber effect uh, is what created what you were describing, a sort of normalcy to what um, I think would rightly be called, both in terms of our present situation and in terms of Christian history, a kind of uh, fringe interpretation of scripture. It's it's (laughs) just not orthodoxy. And um, uh, that, um, that so many people have been convinced that it is, I think is a sign of how um, effective the organizing has been on this extreme right. And uh, the only way to address that, as I understand it, is uh, through organizing. And Mm. so uh, the Poor People's Campaign uh, engages in a kind of moral fusion organizing that uh, that particularly uh, believes that lifting up the voices of the people who are most impacted is the way to uh, uh, change the narrative and to uh, and to really change our values in public life, and so we've been trying to create a platform for the people who've been hurt by uh, this sort of distortion to uh, tell the truth about their own experience and to unite with other people to build power to change the policies. Um, I think that's maybe the um, the most important sort of sociological realization I've had in my adult life that that we don't. Mm-hmm change these ideas by arguing people out of them. We have to change policy. And when we change policy, our ideas change. Uh, Hmm. Because in many ways, the ideas only exist to justify certain uh, arrangements of power. And without changing those arrangements, we'll we'll never change the ideas. There's a great scholar at American University named Ibram Hindi, who has been um, teaching on this in terms of racism in this country. But I think it's true of of, um, uh, almost all of our bad ideas in public life, that the ideas didn't just come out of the ether somehow. They, the ideas were developed to justify uh, ways of using and abusing people. And uh, the only way to, get, to change those ideas is to organize people to change the policies that those ideas were developed to justify. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. This is what's so uh, persuasive and important about your book, Jonathan, is that you're not seeking to fight sort of a Christian nationalism with secular ideas, but rather you're actually saying, hey, there's a there's a biblical value that, uh, there's a biblical narrative and theme and thrust that undercuts sort of the corporate greed and the racism and the the using of wealth to control people and narratives. 
the Bible actually criticizes and critiques that all the way through and gives us a more livable, faithful, gospel-centered way of being in the world. You, 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 uh, you quote um, Rigoberto Menchu in here, uh, your book, that the world needs to start listening to poor women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder, um, maybe, maybe kind of getting down from like 20,000 feet down into maybe one or two of these values that you feel like are prophetic, but also, you know, Christ-centered and full of the gospel. What, what sort of values are we seeking to reclaim as, as gospel ground in the midst of the disorienting Christian nationalism we live in? Well, I think one way of getting to it would be to say that uh, the church, to the extent that it is really church, is the embodiment of an alternative uh, that I'm talking about here. Um, So what I'm trying to describe in many ways in this book is how I have seen people churching, seen Mm. people being church, uh, often as Christians who are self-aware of that, but sometimes far beyond what we usually think of as church. Um, I think, for example, the first story I tell in the book is about a network really of, like you were, like you were saying uh, from Minchu's quote, really poor women down on the um, border, the borderlands in Texas and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, these these uh, women started organizing in their homes and they started teaching uh, the Constitution. They actually cut, um, uh, they copied and cut portions of the Constitution that they realized were um, important protections for all people in this country, whether you're a citizen or not. Um, for example, the prohibition against search and seizure in the Bill of Rights. And they began to teach these things to uh, the community through these small groups of women who met in homes. And they developed what they now call the Border Network for Human Rights, this network of communities that were uh, uh, empowering one another by uh, teaching people their rights and by organizing around those rights to uh, resist the abuses of, uh, of people and of people's rights that were happening. Um, and this was even before the Trump administration's extreme uh, immigration policies. So I, I visited them um, after Trump's election when um, uh, you know the de- deportations were both uh, being you know, intensified and dramatized, much made, made much more public and sort of a, a you know sort of object lesson for a policy agenda. And um, uh, I mean, the striking thing that I saw there was that, you know, uh, people who were separated by a border, who were separated by these narratives that are so demonizing, were were, were, were coming together and were building a, ver- a very surprising uh, kind of alliance of people. I mean, there's both, you know, undocumented folks from the community, uh, but they were also working with members of the Border Patrol there to create these um, opportunities for people who... Uh, families that have been separated on each side of the border to have these meetings in the middle of the river. And uh, I told the story in there of a, a woman named Maria who invited us to go with her to meet her family from the other side in the middle of the river. And, you know, border patrol drove us down there to the river and we, we, we had a, you know, 10 minute window to have this kind of reunion. Um, for them, it was a chance to see one another and, and to be together. Some members of that family hadn't seen each other in 17 years. Um, but for me, I felt like it was a real, uh, baptism into the kind of uh, church that happens when people trust this kind of radical vision of 
you know, a new family of a sort of um, uh, uh, radical welcome of God that says, you know, um, uh, no matter what nation you're born in, you know, people, human beings have uh, a right to uh, to live and to love and to be connected to their their family members and um, and and who were you know performing that they were living that out um, as a kind of embodiment of what I think we need to pursue in terms of immigration policy but um, but we can imagine it because people are living it on the ground and um, mm. we actually met before we went over to do that in the Catholic parish there um, uh, where many of those women are members. I think it is a, you know, a sort of a embodiment of their faith, uh, but it's a way of sort of being church in the streets and in the world. And um, I think that's a, a, yeah, a crucially important part of the revolution of values that we need. Yes. To the extent that we can read the story and see that it is happening both, you know, within what we usually think of as church and beyond that, that we can join that, but we can also take, intentional uh, uh, action to make that um, uh, what we advocate for and work for in our public life. It's not to say that any you know particular candidate or policy is perfect, but to the extent that we can see what you know the gospel makes possible uh, among people, um, we can join together and work together uh, for that moral vision in our public life. And in many ways, I think uh, Christians who have been so uh, misled by this distorted moral narrative that I was describing earlier of the mm-hmm. family values and the religious right over the last 40 years, uh, I think we need to do the work to think together in community uh, about how we engage um, this year in an important election year, but certainly beyond that in terms of um, of, of, of being a faithful political witness in a place where our faith has been so misused. Yes. Uh, one of the values that's part of the, the myth of America that we hear a lot these days, and you, it kind of shows up in the story you just told, is the value of law and order. Yeah. That, that law and order is you know just. Who can argue with following the rule of the law? People throw on Romans 13, et cetera, et cetera. And there have been sort of these these eruptions of the real, if you will, these these tells, these shows that law and order doesn't mean for white people what it means for people of color. So yeah. I was, I'm thinking of maybe, I don't know if you've seen this, Jonathan, this meme of, of the people who kind of were in the Capitol building in Michigan with machine guns and masks, yeah. right? Kind of storming the doors of the elected officials there in Michigan. And this is this is freedom. This is freedom of speech. This is their right. You know, this is they're, they're protesting. And then you've got, you know, a picture of Colin Kaepernick kneeling. And this is, you know, a travesty. Right. This is disrespect. I wonder, yeah. could you just you do such a good job of giving a really complex history about how these narratives, how they function and fall into place and why they're invented. But just this narrative of law and order. Can you can you. Give us just maybe like a two minute of where did that come from and how has that been used historically in America? Yeah, well, in political history, law and order as a, a rally cry uh, comes out of the 1968 presidential election. Um, so it's important to remember that in uh, 68, there were uprisings around the country. Um, 
communities, of course, that had been advocating for civil rights, for desegregation, for um, equal opportunity, not just in the South, but by this time, this was also in cities, you know, in the Midwest and in the Northeast. Um, uh, this was, you know, in Watts out in California that, that was happening all across the country. There were, there were uprisings of uh, people who had uh, seen that um, the system of uh, white supremacy and white control um, was uh, resistant to uh, these calls for equality. And um, in that presidential election, um, George Wallace actually was, uh, was, was running. We're familiar with this right now because we just had a um, primary on the you know, Democratic side where there are multiple people running. Uh, in, in that year, on the Republican side, Wallace was running uh, in the primary against Richard Nixon. And Wallace, of course, is most famous for being a rabid segregationist as the governor of Alabama, He's the guy who stood, you know, in his inaugural address and said segregation yesterday, segregation today, segregation forever. Uh, but when he ran for president in 68, uh, he went around the country outside of the South and he developed a language that rallied white people without explicitly appealing to racism. He wasn't talking, he wasn't promising segregation. He started promising law and order. And Nixon's advisors actually were uh, shocked by how well he did. And they went to Nixon and said, look, if you want to... Uh, if you want to bring this base into your coalition, you really need to use that language of law and order too. And so playing on the fears of white people who saw these uprisings, who saw poor people, mm. particularly black and brown poor people um, uh, advocating for equality in the cities, um, playing on that fear, politicians started to promise law and order to criminalize the activities of you know those who were advocating for their civil rights and to and to um, um, promise that the government would use the sort of strong arm of law enforcement to uh, maintain order and that um, and that that would be the kind of uh, stability or peace that was promised uh, to white people in the south and the suburbs and across the Sun Belt that's what um, uh, Nixon's advisor, uh, Kevin Phillips, said. And so that became known as the Southern strategy, um, mm. a, a strategy of uh, playing on white fears in order to unite uh, white people in the South and across the Sun Belt, so through Arizona and Southern California and in the suburbs of American cities. And uh, what they, what Phillips said at the time, and he was right, is that uh, uh, by using that strategy, that the Republican Party could maintain power for 50 years. Uh, he <laughs> knew the demographics well enough to know that uh, the time that we're currently in was coming. That is the time at which um, uh, white people uh, of a voting age would uh, be, you know, increasingly one among many minorities. And so this strategy could only last as long as that as that would uh, would happen. But um, but that's yeah, that's how law and order came to be. And yeah. It's important to realize that um, uh, while Phillips certainly developed it for Nixon and the Republican Party, it has been used by both Republicans and Democrats. Um, law and order was a huge part of the uh, promise of the war on drugs. And frankly, uh, you in the 90s, you couldn't get elected as a Republican or a Democrat without promising to crack down on you know high crime areas and cities, to crack yes. down on drug use. And um, uh, that has a lot to do with why... Uh, this country incarcerates more people than 
any country in the world. Yes. So this is, I think, one of the most telling and provocative things about this book is that we have these assumptions. Like, who could argue with law and order? This this is clearly sort of a just thing, you know, to obey the law. But when we when we lift up the rug a bit and we see how why it was created, how it's created, and how it functions, i.e., to prey on sort of our fears, to uh, maybe scapegoat or demonize people who aren't like us. Uh, we see that it actually it's functioning as an like an anti-biblical value. So it mm. it actually we're sort of we're sort of double blinded. We think it's good, uh, but actually it's it's the anti-good. And if you know your Bible, of <laughs> course you know that that's the uh, temptation that religious people always face. Yes. Right? What do the prophets say to Israel? But that your um, your, your priests and your religious leaders are leading you astray, right? Ezekiel says they whitewash uh, the injustice of your princes. That's uh, Ezekiel chapter 22. Yeah. Uh, Jesus says, you know, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You, He's talking to the religious leaders, right? Yes. They have uh, gotten in with the political powers and have compromised on God's message in order to maintain their social position. And uh, this has been the story of religion throughout history. It's the, it's the task of God's messengers always to challenge the way that the religious establishment props up uh, the injustice of people who are in power. Yes. Well, I know we have a lot of uh, listeners and a lot of pastors who are beginning to wonder, they're beginning to question or see the cracks and just the stories they believed about immigration and poverty and war and, and those and American exceptionalism um, and all those things. I wonder, Jonathan, as we uh, close today, you, you alluded to this earlier, but a, a lot of us are in churches with people who are really divided over this stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we, um, we only, we're really, we'll take, we'll, we'll, we're willing to go down fighting over something like um, my, the second amendment or something like that. Yeah. Um, if, as you have met with people who really disagree hotly about this, what is, what's some wisdom or practical advice you can offer pastors or leaders who are pastoring congregations with, you know, people that would fall in much different camps? Well, a couple things. Um, I think it's really important for pastors to realize that, um, you're up against a propaganda machine, right? Mm -hmm. This is not simply uh, reasoning with your people about what the Bible says. Um, as a matter of fact, hundreds of millions of dollars have been invested in misinforming your people. <laughs> so it's perfectly understandable that lots of people would, mm -hmm. uh, would be way off on this stuff because that's simply the investment that has mm -hmm. been made. Um, and I don't for a minute uh, imagine that pastors are going to be able to argue people out of that. Um, so given that, uh, what I think is incredibly important is that pastors um, build trust, build trust with uh, all of your flock. Uh, try to make sure people know that you care about them, uh, both in uh, your willingness to tell them the truth but also in your, you know, um, readiness to be there and to care in all the ways that pastors can. And then for everyone who can see uh, 
that there is uh, that there is a problem with the um, distorted moral narrative of Christian nationalism. Help help those people in your flock to see how they can actively participate in organized efforts to offer an alternative and to organize with people um, who are building an alternative because that's what changes things. I, so I think, you know, Christian nationalism is a real problem, uh, but the reality is there's a great uh, new book out by some sociologists who've looked at this. Um, I think the book is called uh, Taking America Back for God. Uh, but what they look at in there is that it's, it's really less than a fifth of the population that really believes this Christian nationalist stuff w- when you look at all the surveys. Um, they can be very loud, but they're not the, ma- the majority. Uh, the reason they have a disproportionate influence on our public life is because the majority of Christians uh, settle into this sort of apolitical version of the faith, right? We don't want to be that, but also don't want to be you know, seen as controversial, don't want to um, uh, pretend that, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that faith has real political implications uh, or that my interpretation of that could in any way, you know, uh, impact what someone else should do. So it's, a, it's all a personal choice kind of thing. And so in all of that, I think um, people are often left without pastoral leadership mm. to help them find a way to faithful political witness. Now, it's not the job of a pastor to tell somebody who to vote for. I think, I, you know, I, I believe in, in separation of church and state and religious liberty as much as anyone. But I do think uh, that pastoral teaching and leadership can help people to see what things are worth fighting for. And more than anything, can help people to meet folks who are doing work based on their own experience, uh, whether they're, you know, undocumented neighbors or poor folks, or, um, you know, if you're a predominantly white community, uh, hearing from black and brown Christians in your community about what sort of policies they believe would benefit them and their communities, those are the things that pastors can do. And I think helping people to hear uh, from folks who are directly impacted and to learn about the organizing that's happening to build up the common good, um, I do think that's something pastors can do. And I I hope we'll do more of it. Um, and not just in election years, but every year. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you named, um, I think you named one of the biggest paralyzing forces that I hear pastors have. They're maybe grown up kind of like you did in the moral majority or the religious right. And they're seeing the vacuousness of that, maybe even the evil in some ways. And so now they just kind of retreat into this apoliticism sort of like, I'm, I'm just, I'm opting out of this thing because it's all bankrupt. Or like this, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be co-opted by the left, the yeah. way that uh, the right is co-opted Christians. And uh, what I appreciate about your work, Jonathan, um, in and this book is that there are ways of being hyper local, really grassroots political, meaning being the body politic, being the body of Christ, and advocating for policies that actually matter for real people on the ground that you know. And I think that's one of the ways for us to re-engage or reinvigorate our political life uh, as we're maybe deconstructing this Christian nationalism. I, I hear you saying that, and I just I think it's a, a really wise way forward. So thank you. Well, thank you. I think um, it's a crucial time. And um, 
uh, as uh, troubled as I am by much of what um, uh, sort of gets airtime in Jesus's name uh, in our country right now, um, I am very encouraged as I uh, listen, as I watch, um, because there are more people uh, who are engaging and bearing witness to uh, other ways of being Christian in public life. Um, I'll just mention a few resources because I think yeah. it could be helpful. Um, um, I'm a part of a network called Red Letter Christians, and Red Letter Christians has been having red letter revivals uh, before the pandemic. These were you know, physical gatherings, but um, we're, we're doing things online right now, too. Um, I'm actually with them tomorrow evening for uh, this thing we're calling Midweek Mobilizing, but uh, giving um, uh, Christians a way to uh, mobilize and live out their faith in public life. Um, we have some friends also with a group called Vote Common Good that um, has been helping uh, particularly evangelicals uh, to think about how uh, when we vote, we can be voting for the common good uh, and really reflecting the kinds of values that we've been talking about here today uh, in our, our, our voting and so um, votecommongood.org is another resource. They're also having lots of virtual events right now that uh, people can learn about. And finally, the Poor People's Campaign that I've mentioned, A National Call for Moral Revival, is a national movement that is led by directly impacted people and that currently is mobilizing uh, the largest uh, digital gathering of uh, people in this nation's history uh, for June 20th, 2020, uh, to right before... Uh, the political conventions sort of establish a platform for you know their candidates to say what the agenda of people who are most impacted by injustice in this country is, what, what people need to see and hear uh, political representatives say they're going to do something about. And um, that uh, is, uh, it was going to be a march on Washington, but now it's going to be a virtual gathering all across the country. Yeah. And you can learn more about it at poorpeoplescampaign.org. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Hmm. I yes. appreciate your ministry, your work, uh, your writing. Um, how can people connect with you virtually? Are, are, do you hang out in any of the social media spaces? Do you have a website, anything like that? I'm on the uh, Twitter and the Facebook, <laughs> and uh, you can also find me at jonathanwilsonhartgrove.com. Great. God bless you. Thanks for being with us today. Bless y'all. Good Peace. to be with you. Right. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join you'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.
Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.